Hello, and welcome to episode 90 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. And also joining us this week is a special guest who uh, regular listeners of the podcast will know from one previous episode. It is from the Wall Street Journal, Joshua Robinson. Hey there, Josh. Hey, guys. Uh, Josh covers all sorts of sports, especially f- uh, soccer and cycling, but all sorts of other stuff too for the Wall Street Journal. So we're excited to talk to him. And this week, what I really wanted to dive into was not just the pandemic response in tennis, but the pandemic response across sports and getting a sense of, of the issues that all sports share and, and where they've been strong or weak and maybe how tennis fits into that context rather than just talking about the same old stuff with tennis. And before we really jump in, just a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, since you're listening to an episode about COVID-19 or related to COVID-19, you should also check out Carl and my COVID-19 podcast, Dangerous Exponents. That's dangerousexponents.com. And if you have not seen my post or listened to our last couple episodes, you might not know about the Tennis Abstract Book Club, which will be meeting, quote unquote, next week for the first time. We are reading a book by Gordon Forbes called A Handful of Summers. So you should read it with us and check in next week or let us know via Twitter what you'd like to hear us talk about about it or ask us any questions uh, or suggest future books or let us know how to do a, a podcast book club. We don't really know. So we'll figure it out next week. Hopefully you'll join us for that. So Josh, before we jump in, we have to plug your book, um, both because it would be a nice thing to do and because it was excellent. You co-wrote with Jonathan Clegg, The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. And as I said last time you were on the show, it is fantastic. I recommend it to everyone, um, even if you do not think you are a soccer fan, like I am most definitely not. So congrats again on the book. Um, I hope a lot of people are reading it and a few of them came to the book because of me. Thanks very much. Um, so let's start off with a, a simple but hard one. Will there be a 2021 Olympics? Will there be a 2021 Olympics? It's uh, it's funny because we're coming up on the anniversary of asking that very same question about 2020. Um, and increasingly, uh, I, I sort of share the opinion that's, that's growing in popularity in Japan, which is I don't think it's. I, I don't think we're going to certainly see the the Olympics like as we know them. Um, it's not going to be the big show that London or Rio was. Um, partially because, uh, and you may be planning on getting into this, but there are so many different avenues that that seem blocked, which is or, or that come with significant challenges. One is figuring out how you're going to get. 10,000 athletes and coaches into Japan when you have this kind of asymmetrical vaccination happening all over the world. Um, we don't know where countries are going to be in terms of uh, of getting their delegations vaccinated. Um, the other problem is figuring out if fans and media are going to be able to come. You know, those tend to be the first to go. Um, so as far as media is concerned, it may turn into a Zoom Olympics the way every other league in the world seemed to turn into a Zoom league. Um, and then, you know, there's the question of, of does Japan actually want this? Um, and increasingly, if you look at the polls there, uh, you've got upwards of 80% of Japanese pe- people saying, you know what, let's just bag the whole thing. 
Josh, in terms of the Zoom Olympics idea, is there some plan in a desk somewhere that someone's pulled out of like, okay, what if we do have to fracture this thing? What if we can't all be in the same place, even though that's so central to what we think of as an Olympics? Is is there like a backup site for, for the various sports, a place that kind of makes the most sense so that you don't have 10,000 gathering in one place, but people moving a whole lot less and gathering in much smaller numbers? I don't think they've, it's an interesting idea, but I don't think they've really explored the idea of kind of blowing up the Olympics so that none of the events are in the same place. Um, but what they, you know, what we've heard already from little whispers around like the U.S. Olympic Committee and, and as they ask us, you know, strictly theoretically, if you were interested, which sports would you be interested in if we were to do Zoom press conferences? Um so it, that I, that idea is already uh, percolating. And I'm going to try to hesitate to, before bringing this back to tennis every time I open my mouth, but we're sort of seeing a very mini fractured Olympics thing happening in tennis right now because the Australian Open qualifying rounds are happening in the Middle East, which is unprecedented. Um, I found an example in the 60s of when Wimbledon qualifying happened in two different locations in the UK, but that's not quite the same thing as having Australian Open qualifying in Dubai. And in on the one hand, it seems like that's a creative solution. It allowed there to be qualifying rounds for the Australian Open. On the other hand, it 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 seems like the easiest of the or the or the most basic of the creative solutions to still have everybody hundreds of people go to one location have some australians leaving australia just to possibly come back i mean it it, it it's a good start it didn't seem like it's a great solution i mean it, do you think that sports have been in creative enough it, it, should they have been more creative in figuring out ways how to get through the pandemic well, we we kind of know what the the Cadillac of pandemic solutions is, right? It's the NBA bubble. That became the example for everybody. You get everyone in one place. You get them to quarantine. You get them to uh, get tested with in- incredible regularity, and then you just keep them there until they're done competing. That's, you know, if you could do that with everybody, that would be the solution. But it, one, it costs a fortune. Two, it's logistically uh, a nightmare. Um, but if you know, that's that's kind of a version of what we saw with the U.S. Open uh, as well. Um, again, it's it came at huge expense to to U.S. tennis, and then the idea of doing that for everything is just impractical. Um, you know, MLS did it too in Florida with a, a tournament over the summer, and while it gained, got them some good press, it was also hugely expensive because suddenly they were on the hook for chartering every, flights for everybody to get down to, to Disney um, and everything else. So, the you know, if there is like a, a really great hybrid solution, I don't think anyone's found it yet. Um, but, you know, if, if you need kind of one event to really figure it out, it's the Olympics. Hey Josh, you mentioned the NBA bubble and also just how expensive and complicated it was. And, and that was the full league, basically. So just an enormous number of people Mm-hmm. just among the players you know in in european soccer at times we've we've heard about maybe like elite just the top teams in various competitions tennis has 128 draws in the men's side and on the women's side for slams but there are events that are much smaller like the tour finals 
where it, it just seems much more manageable. I'm wondering if, if that's been a trend at all in any sports. I mean, the, the Tour de France is is also an enormous field and, and surely very complicated given how much it's moving around. H- have you seen in some sports an effort to say, you know, let's just scrap our usual size and go for something much smaller that we can really get more of a handle on? Or is everyone trying to do their regular thing in this irregular time? Um, well, the closest I could I can think of is what happened with the Champions League. Um, that's the the premier European soccer tournament where teams compete from all over Europe, and they had reached uh, the knockout rounds and they were down to the the last eight. And normally, that would be stretched over several months, and teams play two legs, so it's every every round is a home and home series. Um, Instead, what UEFA, European Soccer's governing body, did was say, okay, we know what the A teams are going to be. Let's take them all to one place. In this case, it was Lisbon. We're going to put them all in their own hotels, and they're going to exist in these kind of bubbles without being like the NBA bubble. Um, and we'll bust them to and from practice and to and from the games, and every series, every round is just one game. So it became like a mini World Cup, and that was a huge success uh, Ratings-wise, and also just for the quality of soccer, it was it was incredibly entertaining. Um, there's already suggestions that something like that could happen for the Champions League uh, this spring if we're still in the same situation. And then ultimately, European soccer has got a big problem with the European Championships. Not only is that 24 national teams from all over Europe competing, but for the first time ever, they were going to do it in 12 different countries. Um, and that's just looking increasingly impractical and, and impossible to do again when you have different situations in every country. So you, you mentioned how they handled the, the Champions League final. Is it, it sounds like that's something that a new format might stick. I mean, are there some things that that sports are getting a chance to try out this year that that you think are going to have ramifications long after the pandemic is behind us? Um, well, one thing that's that's interesting, and then you know, you say you bring everything back to tennis, I'll bring everything back to soccer. Um, but one thing that soccer has trialed um, because of the very compressed season is going up from three substitutes to five substitutes for match uh, for matches. And while nearly every European league has adopted that, and the Premier League refused, um, it's been pretty interesting, and it's been a huge relief to teams um, because they're you know they're essentially playing every three to five days for close to 10 months uh and it's it's just a, it's it's such a, a huge demand physically on the teams and we're seeing the quality of play decline so I, I only think it would decline further without those substitutions those extra substitutions now that's interesting and you wrote about how um how the style of play has changed with mm-hmm. the compressed season and in similar question about that i mean is is that a temporary change or you know are are sports kind of being forced to to experiment with even different things on the court or on the pitch that might stick after the pandemic well with respect to soccer the the direction of the game was evolving towards like a really high energy high pressing style and that was what all the best teams were doing um and that's just impossible now and we're seeing even a team like Liverpool, who played, it seemed like 100 miles an hour, uh, have to back off a little bit just because you can't sustain it. Yeah, that's that's interesting that 
it's not a direct effect of the pandemic, right? It, 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 but it is, it is sort of a second order effect because of the way the schedule's been been compressed. Um, let's see. Let, let's switch over to something else that I wanted to talk about. Um, is you recently wrote about one cycling team getting the vaccine or being scheduled to get get a vaccine very early in this process, and do you think that's something we're going to continue to see in the news as even in the early stages of the vaccine rollout to um to see elite athletes essentially getting a chance to jump the queue so just to step back for a second i think cycling has been one of the the most kind of incredible threads to follow in the sports world this year um because it it was not just present at the very beginning of the pandemic we're talking about last february at a, a race in abu dhabi when we start we started seeing cases really crop up among the riders and you know certain guys wound up in hospital certain guys wound up stuck in in the emirates for several weeks um and and that's when suddenly we started thinking hang on this is this is a real thing that's going to cause the sporting events too among many other disastrous consequences um and so the idea that and seeing cycling come back in the way it did to actually put up a full calendar of Grand Tours. Um, and I, I covered the Tour de France, which was, you know, if you know what, what kind of a circus the Tour is under normal circumstances, the idea of being able to execute that in a kind of moving bubble was was really wild. Um, and so it's the team that won the Tour that not only had a, a case of likely reinfection, uh, with one of its riders, a guy who got it in February and then tested again in October with many negative tests in between. Um, but because of their association with the United Arab Emirates, um, they're sponsored by by a, a UAE construction mobile, uh, they were able to get to Abu Dhabi for their kind of normally scheduled warm weather winter camp. And the day after they touched down, uh, they were given access to the Sinopharm vaccine in Abu Dhabi. Um, and I believe that makes them the first major sports team, at least in the West, to be vaccinated. Um, they're still down there now, and they'll they'll get the second shot on their way out. But, um, you know, it, it does raise the possibility of a kind of vaccine tourism. And they're, the way international sports are set up now, where you have a lot of not just movement of athletes like the tennis tour stopping in in the Emirates on their way to, to on its way to Australia, um, but also teams like Manchester City in the Premier League, which is sponsored by, uh, which is actually you know backed by the state of Abu Dhabi, um, you know, and the same with PSG in Qatar, where in place in rich countries that have a kind of glut of doses and also total discretion in how it's distributed. I think we're going to see a lot more uh, opportunities for teams and athletes with connection to the connections to those places take advantage of it. Yeah, that's it, it. Definitely makes sense that 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 would be the the result of some of the structural things you're talking about. And I think a lot of people probably get this twinge whenever they hear about something like that. That you know these people are getting vaccinated before they should. It's not fair. They're taking a vaccine away from someone else who needs it more. Um, and I understand all that, and and I but I wonder on the other hand, this has been a rough year for pretty much everybody. There there's some some evidence that shows that really big sporting events can raise national happiness, at least a, 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 
an incremental amount. And we're not talking about a lot of elite athletes. I mean, elites themselves are a pretty small group. And if we were, for instance, just to, to make it a point to vaccinate everyone who qualified for the Olympics. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a lot of people when you th- think, think about an athletic event, but it's not a lot of people when you think about current vaccine campaigns. And do you think there's a good argument to be made that, that, that elite athletes ought to be jumping the queue? I mean, that, that they ought to have these opportunities to you know, get back out there and at least get their lives back to normal so that they can entertain us? Right. Well, it's, it's several arguments like being made at the same time. The idea of being... Okay, if but if we accept that these sporting events are are kind of necessary and and they need to go ahead, then you know you can see how you can argue. Then absolutely, the athletes should be should be vaccinated and move up in the queue. You know, not necessarily ahead of anyone who who like frontline workers or or the elderly, um, but you know the idea that they are continuing to do this that they are putting themselves at risk by continuing to travel by continuing to compete and that you know you can at least secure that with not very many vaccines you know that that argument's out there and it's one being made by the the chief medical officers of various olympic committees saying you know we're not a you know pick country x saying we're, we're you know our delegation to the olympics is maybe 200 300 athletes and coaches vaccinate all of them and really it doesn't move the needle that much in terms of uh of a national vaccination campaign especially one that that might be doing well for instance you know israel i think that argument is is gaining some currency um but at the same time it's the problem is becomes it, it becomes such a political question as well that not many i think politicians then want to stick their neck out for uh for you know the olympic uh, judo team yeah i can see that being a tough political sell it's, it's probably one of those things that's better if it just gets done behind the scenes and you deal with a blowback later you don't try to make make the public case for it and the flip side of that is the, the same thing we're dealing with on a broader societal scale is maybe not all these athletes would want the vaccine if it's offered. I mean, it, pretty early on in in the pandemic, Novak Djokovic was voicing his vaccine skepticism. And it, it it's not a huge issue at the moment because the vaccines aren't available for him. And he also, he also got the virus. So presumably he has some level of immunity. But this is going to be an issue eventually, right? That there's going to be a top tennis player or a top Olympian or maybe an mem- uh, important member of a soccer team who doesn't want to get the vaccine uh what happens then it's a great question and um you know i think the ultimately the limiting factor will be or or the decision will be made by various sports bodies or various event organizers who will say um you know we require a vaccine to come play whether it's you know roland garros or uh or to participate in the olympics or to you know, play in the Champions League. Um, I think we, we may see something like that. Um, and then that opens a whole new can of worms. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's a question that, that would be resolved, uh, that, that would have to be resolved in, in court somewhere. Um, but the, you know, vaccine skepticism, you look at, at the places where it's highest in the, the developed world, uh, Japan is one of them, uh, which is a, a really a fascinating question 
again, with regard to organizing the Olympics, France is another one um, that has high vaccine shyness. Um, and, it, you know, and, and similarly, I think next door in, in Italy. And one thing that, that kind of made me laugh last week was a former Italian cyclist named Ricardo Rico came out and said, you know what, I'm, I'm not on board with this. I wouldn't take the vaccine if I if it meant you know, if I needed it to compete and things. Um, Ricardo Rico, you should know, also happens to be what notorious doper. Um, so he uh, <laughs> he was not shy about putting other things in his body, but uh, he draws the line at the vaccine. Well, and people's views on the vaccine are surely mutable. Uh, and, and maybe for him, seeing peers getting vaccinated or seeing rules, you know, forcing him essentially to get vaccinated to continue in his in his job uh, might change things. I'm wondering if you were mentioning that you think it'll be up to the organizational bodies. Do you think for some countries, maybe in particular countries where skepticism is high and it would be uh, potentially useful from a sort of PR point of view to get prominent athletes on board? Um or countries that that are that have very strict borders now, um, do you think that that people just won't won't even be able to travel to events, whatever the organizational bodies want to do, because countries won't allow it once they've had a reasonable amount of time to to vaccinate all the athletes in their sport? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, we're you know we're getting into kind of theoretical situations here um, and decisions that are made far above my pay grade. But one thing that something that you mentioned there that's really interesting, um, and my colleague Ben Cohen wrote about this in the journal, about the the idea of enlisting uh, prominent athletes to to then overcome vaccine skepticism and vaccine shyness um, is one that's being circulated a lot. And, you know, it's it's the reason why we see uh, politicians receive the vaccine on television. Uh, there was talk of, of where I am, of President Emmanuel Macron doing it as well. Um, and, and public health officials, at least, believe that can be an extremely effective tool in convincing people to take the vaccine. Yeah, I, we even talked about this on our other podcast as well. I floated the half-joking idea that anyone with at least 10,000 Instagram followers should be given the vaccine as long as they, they take it publicly to, to help overcome the vaccine skepticism. And I was surprised that... I, I did read about the, the Italian cyclist you mentioned, and I think I, maybe I read the same the, the same funny comment from you that, that yes, he, he's anti-vaccine, but he's not shy about putting other things in his body. Um, but I was surprised to hear that in the context of cycling because you've covered that a lot. And even long before the pandemic, you were writing about how one of the most prized possessions among these, these cycling groups is hand sanitizer. They've been germaphobes for a long time. And I think people have, some people might have missed this story if they're not actively following cycling. I mean, it's it's really, really impressive that that the Tour de France and, and other events managed to happen at all. I mean, can you talk about how how they were executed and I mean, how they managed to actually come off without disaster striking? So the the crazy thing about the tour is that it's a three-week event where they're in a different place every day. Um, and these are athletes with, you know, pushing their bodies to the very limit. So uh, if there's a so much as a cold floating around, they end up catching it, um, you know, especially in week three of the tour when they're, when they're worn down and tired and underslept and overworked. Um, and so long before anyone was worried about COVID, 
They used hand sanitizer the way we all learned to this year. They uh, would self-quarantine if someone on the team developed a sniffle because they're normally two to a hotel room, but they always have a free one in case someone uh, someone catches a, a cold or a, a bug. Um, and, you know, you do hear about guys, and we're talking about the middle of July in France, catching bronchitis at the tour because this is, you know, this is how immunocompromised they are. Um, and so pulling that off in the conditions we know today was really remarkable because what then had to happen is, you know, every day you're on a course that's 100, 150 miles long that's open to the public. It's just the streets. Um, and theoretically, you know, there's there's nothing preventing the, 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 the spectators from being extremely close to the riders, especially on mountain passes. We all know the photos of huge crowds and, and riders just splitting the crowds as they crawl up mountains. But you know, that's all like breathing right in their faces. Um, and over the course of the tour, what they did at various points was either limit the number of people who were allowed on mountain passes, ban them all together. Still, some people managed to get up there, not always with great mask discipline. Um, and the other major thing they did was reduce media access, which was frustrating uh, for those of us covering it, but also necessary under normal circumstances media is allowed to just kind of mill around the team buses uh, before the start every day where you're right up against the riders, you're chatting with whoever's there. Um, they didn't do that this year. They did a kind of mixed zone, um, which to non-sports journalists is uh, a weird term, but basically means that you stand on one side of a gate or a fence uh, and athletes walk past on the other and you, they stop if they want to and most of the time they don't. I want to come back to that. I did want to ask you about the experience of, of, of being a sports journalist during the pandemic. But before we get there, um, a little more about, about cycling. Going back to some of your, your, or your older articles, and I'm sure other journalists were writing about this as well, it, it, it doesn't take a, a, a public health expert to, to see how this could all go very badly wrong. Um, I mean, as you say, like these, these cycling races are... In, involve a lot of people who are immunosuppressed very, very close to each other for hours on end. So you would expect a virus to spread. And in in the Tour de France, there were teams that had to pull out because a couple of people did get infected. But this has been true across sports all year. I feel like every time a sport announced a plan, there was always a chorus. Maybe I'm just reading too much Twitter, but there was always a chorus that said, oh, this is going to be a disaster. There's no way this is going to work. They're going to look so bad when this all falls apart and everyone gets COVID. And there have been lots of hiccups along the way, lots of hiccups. But for the most part, every one of these plans, whether we're talking about North American sports bubbles or the Tour de France or or Roland Garros, they've mostly come out of this okay. I mean, do you think this is this is just sheer luck that there hasn't been an, an event that fell apart in disaster, or is it a testament to really great planning? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, there were various moments where things were, you know, were going badly, and uh, organizations just decided to plow through, um, which was really interesting. And you know, all of it depends on what your standard is for shutting it down. Uh, I'm thinking about MLS, which organized the tournament over the summer and then, you know, before it even started, had two teams pull out because of, of a spread of COVID cases in the squad. 
for a lot of people, that would have been enough to say, you know what, this is a bad idea. Let's uh, let's give up. They plowed ahead, reorganized the schedule, and just and and by the time they all got to Florida, uh, it went pretty well. Um, you know, the Premier League, in the way it came back, has had a handful of cases here and there, or had a handful of cases here and there over the summer when they finished the previous season, and then when they came back in September, went pretty well. But now they're reaching another crisis point where. Games are getting rescheduled. You know, the Premier League lost its first games um, of the of the 2020-21 season uh, just last week. So, and that hadn't really happened since they came back in the summer. Um, so, the idea that that they're getting lucky, that they're choosing to plow through and and kind of treat every case as it comes, um, I, I think both of those things are true. But at the same time, I think what's common between a lot of leagues is they all said, we can do this one time. We can't do it a second time, um, you know, because then it becomes financially ruinous. In terms of how these came off and and what the threshold was for, for ending things, it, it seems like mostly what we know is how many athletes uh, tested positive and then potentially, although I haven't really seen the numbers and would be curious, like how many got seriously sick? I haven't heard of too many examples of that. But do we know about the the sort of broader effects? Like are the leagues doing enough tracing to know in the cases where, where fans are in place, how many fans might have gotten sick at their events, how many uh, supporting staff? Uh, do, do we do we kind of know about those broader effects that that host cities and countries might be particularly interested in knowing and in, in assessing these kinds of um, potential events? Um, it's a great question, and as far as I know, we don't really have a great sense of that. Um, we we don't have a great sense of. Uh, the support staff that's required to open a stadium, how they're doing uh, in terms of infections and whether cases are cropping up there. Um, we don't really know what's happening in terms of, uh, you know, we don't know the longer term effects either, um, even with those athletes who had it. There's, there's still so much mystery around this that, you know, we can say today, I guess it was a good idea because it worked. But we won't fully know that it that it was a hundred percent safe, maybe for years. You know, often when we think about the the decision made by potential host cities, it's it's clear that it's so driven by the active the the sort of economic effect of fans, and those estimates are often pretty questionable. But it, let's say in the case of the U.S. Open for New York, they're enormous; they're trotted out every year. This is why it's great for the city. What is what is the calculation for 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 cities like in terms of uh, the the upside of sporting events going forward in an environment when you have zero or or much fewer fans than usual? Uh, to be perfectly honest, there's not a ton, right? Um, you know, because you're not bringing people in, you're you're really just offering a stage, and then. Uh, what you become then you're on still on the hook for security you're still on the hook for the uh, various arrangements that that teams need when they travel in and out um so it's it's not a, a super appealing idea and I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the you know the 12 host cities scattered across europe for this summer's euro which was uh which was uh 
rescheduled from last summer, you know, if you're, say, Budapest or Bucharest or Amsterdam or Dublin, you know, any of these cities that signed up, you know, you, you did that thinking, all right, there's going to be obviously the prestige of hosting major international competition, but also we're going to have fans from whichever two countries are playing here flocking to the to the city. They're going to spend money. They're going to go to restaurants. They're going to go to bars um, and, and, you know, really kind of keep us in the keep give us a real lift for that period around games. I mean, that's clearly not going to happen. Uh, UEFA is already talking about 70% capacity or 30% capacity, and both of those to me seem actually kind of ambitious for having a tournament by this June. So last time you were on the on the show, Josh, we were talking about the specifically about Saudi Arabia and the various sporting events that Saudi Arabia was was hosting, and in more in general, sort of middle middle Easternization of sports. I think that we, you had a better term than that, than that for for the phenomenon, but. Um, I mean, is that is that potentially a long term effect? I mean, because as as you're saying, there, there's not a lot of incentives for most cities to to host events like this when there's not fans. So a lot of events are getting canceled; they're getting moved. And one of the few places, or some of the few places where they can go forward, is in the Middle East. And these are these are places that are are willing to host events for reasons other than fan income or or the tourist income so like i mentioned earlier the fact that australian open qualifying is happening in dubai there's a a women's tennis tournament that was pieced together kind of last minute that's happening in abu dhabi right now uh so is is this just one more step towards the middle easternization of global sports um it's it's possible um because you know the middle east you know the Gulf countries continue to be there and continue to be available. I mean, the the FIFA Club World Cup is going ahead in Qatar next month, um, and again, it's when you have when you have states that have kind of total discretion in the way they allocate resources and they have endless resources, um, can and can decide. You know what? Hosting these sporting events is, continues to be a priority for us. And and I think the term you were referring to is sport washing. Um, which is a, a way of kind of uh, running your reputation through this uh, through this sports prism. Um, it, it you know it it means they can continue to do this, and there are sports who aren't tied down to to certain locales, like you know the way European soccer might be or the the tennis majors might be. Um, that can say, hang on, you know we can we can go ahead with this, and as long as there are no fans. We might as well go there where it's, you know, we're being invited. Uh, we know the infrastructure is top class. And this way we can still continue to honor our TV contracts because that's the other half of the calculus. Um, you know, that that is the lifeblood of most sports. And teams like, you know, we saw it even in the Premier League after the, the hiatus in the, in the spring. And then when they came back, they still finished the season because it was crucial to their to their uh, honoring their contracts and even then a club like Manchester United still paid a 30 million dollar rebate to broadcasters um you know they they really can't afford to do much more than that and that's why I was saying before a lot of places are thinking we really can't afford another stoppage or another like piece together season um because we have to continue delivering our product 
what have we learned in this unintentional experiment of of what the TV product how the TV product is received given all the constraints of the pandemic, especially uh, the you know empty stadiums, fake fan noise for some sports. Like what? How has that turned out? I think there was maybe some hope that it it would be a big success because people were so hungry for for some real live in person content to watch. Uh, what what does it look like? Does it varied by sport or by country? Yeah, it it has varied um, a bunch and. You know, I think of like Spanish soccer, which not only piped in crowd noise to the TV broadcast, but did a weird kind of almost N64 fan rendering in the stands. Um, and it, it looks kind of crazy and maybe you don't need it. But overall, um, as someone who watches a lot of European soccer, I haven't minded the, the crowd noise. And I actually kind of, I, I hesitate to say this, but I kind of like it. Um, it You know, the, the TV watching experience is not that different. Um, you you lose a little bit of the intensity, and if you start to really pay attention closely to the noises, to the crowd noise, it's not synced up the way you'd like it to be, and all of that. But if you're just sticking on a game, uh, the experience is not that that different. Um, although with tennis, for instance, you know I think the not having the crowds, you lose a ton. Um, you know we're used to silence during the points, but not having the roar after a huge rally. Um, is is kind of depressing, and um, I covered Roland Garros over here in Paris, and being in the stadium was even stranger. Um, having a kind of private Grand Slam was was uh, quiet, and and hadn't kind of needed to remind myself like, hey, th- there are real stakes here. This is this is the real thing, uh, even if it felt like two people hitting in the park. Yeah, I, I would imagine from having been in that stadium with nobody else that it would feel like you're watching a practice match because they do play practice matches in, in non-pandemic years in those stadiums with just a few journalists and, and other folks scattered around. Uh, so yeah, just feeling those stakes in person must must be hard. Speaking of Roland Garros, I mean, that that's one of many tennis events where it feels like the plans were changing at the last minute due to local conditions and rules and how many people would be allowed and, and which part of the the stadium and, and that continues to seem to be the case for tennis that we're always maybe just trying to keep up with the next couple of months and and it's really hard to set a schedule even though it's a sport where you're asking people to to travel around the world and and, and schedule their seasons are there sports that are way ahead here that are like okay we figured out what we're going to do for the rest of 2021 and we have a plan for 2022 based on where we think where we think things are or are most sports kind of seat of their pants watching conditions and and um keeping everyone kind of on alert i just have to jump in sorry josh and answer answer the question that was meant for you that my my day job is in, involved with college baseball university baseball teams in the u.s and normally the season starts around valentine's day so about a month from now and there's no schedules absolutely nothing it's not even not even seat of your pants it's like the chair that might someday give you a place to sit with the seat of your pants. I don't know, but Josh, you can give a serious answer now. Um, the well, there's two things, two parts to it. One is we're now at a point where like the vaccine exists and is out there, and I think a lot of leagues and organizers are thinking, well, do we really need to come up with a long-term solution because we're inching closer to the moment where. Uh, the participants at least will be vaccinated and you know let's let's see how much longer we can just kind of stretch whatever kick we're on now 
to and and get to a, a vaccine situation. Um, the other thing is, I think the only organization that has really just nailed their response to the whole situation was Wimbledon. Wimbledon got it right from the very beginning, saying, you know what? 2020 is no good for us. We have pandemic insurance. We're just going to punt till 2021. We'll see you next summer. Um, and that was, you know, they haven't sweated it at all. Um, they they did various charitable things over the summer to and kept pushing out content in, in various ways. But they decided early that this that 2020 wasn't worth trying to find a workaround for. Um, they weren't going to dilute their product. And um, but that comes from the luxury of and, and almost the luck, because uh, I did some reporting around this, of have someone's deciding, you know what, we'll throw pandemic insurance into our larger uh, coverage package 20 years ago. The same was true of uh, the British Open Golf as well. Yeah, that, that reminded me that I, I've been kind of waiting to, to find out, A, did everybody else hurry up and buy pandemic insurance, although presumably it's way more expensive and probably is way more uh you know exceptions built into it like like is pandemic insurance still available to leagues that that wish they had what what Wimbledon did and is there some like general push for more insurance and kind of financial protection like are people more aware of other risks to their to their sport and and protecting protecting it that they hadn't thought about before but might be more aware of given suddenly the realization of how fragile it all is uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. I don't have any specific examples of uh, of organizations kind of rather than lawyering up, insuring up. Um, but the I'm sure that that's that's the realization that everyone's had this year, which is this ecosystem is extremely fragile, and it does not take a lot to to knock it completely off course. And suddenly, and even if you want to continue, even if you find ways to continue, that then becomes a, a that's, that then happens at great expense to you. Uh, and it comes back to what I was saying before, which is they can do the work around one time. Um, but beyond that, if you have to do it again in 2021, I don't think you know that the US Open, for instance, is prepared to do another bubble setup for you know this fall. Could we just give like really superficial grade to tennis relative to the degree of difficulty it's faced and and the other sports? I mean, you mentioned the NBA did well with its bubble. Uh, the Champions League was was a hit for kind of limiting, uh, for creating sort of a bubble of its own. And Wimbledon was successful for not happening. Um, tennis faces presumably a lot of challenges. So if we're going to grade it on a curve, like how would you say it, it's done so far? Um. You know, te- tennis was really up against it, partially because it requires so many, uh, so much international travel, and so many people to have all the right visas at the right times and things like that. And getting everyone in the just getting everyone in the right place to play a tennis tournament is a huge undertaking. Um, you know, I I'd be inclined to say, like, especially considering the the way the slams went off, I'd be inclined to say a minus for tennis, but I'm gonna bump it down to a B plus because of Djokovic and. Uh, the Adria tour. Yeah, that's a good call. I think that, that's definitely worthy of a half grade. And I, I, if I can add to that, I probably want to give the, the ATP about a half grade higher than, than the WTA. They did a fantastic job getting the product on the court for a lot of months this year when the WTA wasn't able to. And, uh, 
And a lot of other sports probably would have thrown in the towel. Because, I mean, as you say, Josh, it's it's a logistical challenge just to get everybody in the same place. And it's a logistical challenge for the players, even in the best of times, to, to have the visa and get themselves where they need to be. Um, so, Carl, did you have anything to add before we shifted topics? Yeah, just that I think from an organizational level, it makes sense to, to give the ATP a, a good grade relative to WTA. I think on the player side, most of the... Uh, questionable behavior, behavior that just completely violated the the COVID rules and and maybe risked the sport at a broader level. All the examples I can think of were on the ATP side. Uh, I guess it didn't add up to enough that you know the Australian Open isn't happening or, or any other major calamity, but uh, it's it's raised the risk profile of the sport. That's definitely a fair point. Uh, so. Josh, in one of the articles you wrote uh, leading up to the Champions League final, you, you talked about how different the preparation was for for teams across Europe, and that's largely based on on the restrictions that were in place in each country and what that meant for their athletic schedules and what that meant for mobility within the countries and so on. Um, I mean, do you think that there's been any any shifts of international power, either in soccer or more generally, because? athletes and teams have had to deal with such different constraints for the last year? Um, that's an interesting area. And the, you know, this may be a little bit uh, inside baseball for European soccer, but, you know, one country that has suffered a lot because of the pandemic and whose, whose status has suffered is France. Um, because not only did they shut down the league and not come back for the, tw- the rest of the 2019-2020 season the way everyone else did, um, but they then lost a TV contract, and and they're really uh, they're really hurting right now. And you wonder what kind of long term effects that's going to have on on clubs' ability to sign players and compete at the the European level. Um, in terms of the competitive balance of other sports, I mean, we saw what was one thing that was amazing to me is the you know that NBA teams who didn't qualify for the bubble because they weren't in the top twenty two. Then went you know ba- went basically eight months without a game. Um, that was really wild to me. And then there are those who kind of made decisions about career longevity and and various surgeries. And I'm thinking here of Roger Federer, who kind of used this year to the best. Right, he needed the knee surgery, got it at a time when he didn't feel he was giving up any meaningful competition. Um, and that's not a bad way to to spend uh, nine months when you can't play tennis anyway. Yeah, that was a, a good call. It'll be interesting to see as well how Ash Barty fares um, coming back. I mean, she, she didn't have any surgery to get done, but she she did basically take the pandemic off up to this point. And presumably she'll be playing in, in Melbourne and the Australian Open, but um, maybe the rest will, will do her good. She certainly came back from her short career in cricket, um, playing very well and getting up to number one in the world. So... We definitely could talk for a lot more about pandemic-related issues, but one of one of the great things about Josh's work, and I think it's fair to say journal sports writers in general, is that you get to cover a, a really wide array of interesting stuff, even in a pandemic year. And the first thing I wanted to ask you, Josh, uh, in the non-pandemic category, is um, Slovenia. So... What Slovenia had a good year when many of the rest of us didn't. What can the rest of the world learn from Slovenian sports? I mean, pound for pound, what a country! Uh, what a country of athletes. Um, they had 
guys in the NBA playoffs at the same time. They won two of the three uh, the three Grand Tours in cycling with Primoz Roglic taking the, the Vuelta and uh, Tadej Pogacar winning the, the Tour de France. Um, and, you know, now we're into winter sports and you see Slovenians all over the ski slopes, ski slopes including a guy a few weeks ago at a, who won a World Cup after starting, like, in the 40s at a point where he's, he was so far down the list that the medals had already been handed out and the TV coverage had already packed up. Um, Slovenia can't stop winning at, at sports. Is there anything they're doing right? I mean, I'm half joking and asking what can the world learn from Slovenian sports, but you know, people have definitely asked and tried to answer that question about Norway, which is, I mean, mostly good at winter sports, but very, very good at winter sports. Like, given this broad range of success, summer sports, winter sports, North American sports, European sports, like, and this is a country of 2 million, I believe, like, are there lessons we can take away from that? Should other countries be more like Slovenia? So one one part of it is that it's cultural. You know, it is a sports mad country, um, and everyone. And, and the other thing is is what we've kind of learned over the past few years about spe- specialization or keeping uh, kids growing up uh, doing a variety of sports. And you know, they're a really great argument for playing as many sports as you can they you know they cycle and swim and and uh play soccer all summer they all ski all winter um you know part of that is geographic slovenia is in a in a very lucky corner of the world where they have access to the sea and to to the alps um and what you get is some really well-rounded athletes um who who come through and you know they they do a very good job of supporting each other as they develop, and that's that's often true of small countries um, when you see success at the Olympics or, or elsewhere. Um, and in the case of Primoz Roglic, a guy who came second at the Tour, won the Vuelta, uh, that's a guy who did not become a professional cyclist until his 20s, did not take up cycling until his 20s. Before that, he was a junior uh, kind of world tour uh ski jumper so i think it really speaks volumes about just creating well-rounded athletes um and making that kind of a a cultural priority as well well slovenia doesn't have as much success in tennis but when you first wrote that article i i, I don't think i ever did this but i meant to tweet and polona herzog won a match yesterday too i think she won her first round match in in rome and the the great hope for slovenian tennis is kaya yuvan and and I don't know how broad her sporting background is, if she really follows the pattern that you're discussing in terms of non-specification. But I do remember, I th- think it was not la- not this last U.S. Open, but the year before that, she skipped the U.S. Open and that, that circuit in, the, in North America to finish high school. And that's something that you don't hear very often about 18-year-old tennis players. Normally, tennis is everything and anything else they need to get done has to fit around the tennis. I mean, the idea of skipping a major to, to finish your coursework is is pretty rare. So, Josh, you also wrote about the underhand serve. So, what do you think? Is that is it, is it a good thing for tennis? Bad thing for tennis? Is it are we going to see more of it? I'm always pro a little bit of trickery, a little bit of gamesmanship. Um, I think, I mean, you guys you guys know better than I do on this, but uh, you know, we've seen especially in the men's game, we've seen huge serves push returners further and further behind the baseline. I think there's nothing wrong with keeping keeping people honest uh, with a little underhand serve once in a while. And 
an article you wrote with, I think this was one of the ones you wrote with Ben Cohen about how athletes in general are breaking their sports, whether we're talking marathoners or, or NBA three-point shooters. It, it was almost just in passing, but you mentioned in addition to, to, to big serves, returners are getting better. The, the players are, are hitting returns a lot deeper. And is is the underhand serve kind of the... The, the third order effect of that? I mean, is that, is that what servers have to do to sort of set the balance right again? Well, it's the idea that, you know, tennis is great because in, in the entire history of the game, the, you know, the court has stayed the same size. Um, and so as athletes change and as tactics change and equipment changes, um, they're still always working in those, that's those same constraints, which, which I love. Um, and so finding new ways to use that space um, is is fascinating to me. And I think, yeah, I think it's right to say that the underhand serve is yet another little wrinkle that you can bring to, you know, as you kind of reshape how you use the, the space. And I think, I know Alexander Bublik made the semis in Antalya. Uh, I, I think he might have won his semifinal today. I'm not sure. But... Um, but there's your, your your captain of the underhand serving team. So before we we close up shop on this week's episode, uh, the last thing I wanted to do was on a serious note, um, we all lost a friend last week in former Wall Street Journal tennis writer and, and freelance journalist extraordinaire Tom Parada. Um, I didn't know him well, but I was fortunate enough to play tennis with him a few times and, and spend some time watching tennis and... Um, and getting to know him and what a great guy, what a great loss to the tennis community and, and journalistic community as a whole. Um, and Josh, you, you knew him as a colleague and a friend as well. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I was lucky enough to cover a bunch of Wimbledons and a bunch of French opens with him um, here in, in Europe um, and, you know, bring whatever, whatever help I could, because I mean, I, I was never going to know half as much or a fraction as much about tennis as, as he did. Um, and it was it was really a privilege to work with him and and watch him work as well because what he had was just this incredible clarity uh, in in his kind of formulation of not just the stories but seeing the angles um, and I really envied that and and he's a huge loss to us the journal and I think to tennis writing in general. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I mentioned the the variety of things that that you've written about and how that's sort of a universal thing at the at the journal. That it, it's almost like a job qualification that you all need to be very good at at finding interesting angles. And I'm I'm not sure anybody did it better than than Tom Parada did. And and Carl, I know you you knew him well also. Yeah, uh, and I think the one time I remember most strongly being with him and Josh together was watching Eurovision in Paris during the French Open. So uh, he he was versatile. He could watch a lot of different competitions. Um, I I also, yeah, I mean, everything you both have said about him, and he's also just a great person and really good to work with and to like so, so good to his colleagues at the journal, but also so good to his colleagues more broadly in tennis writing. And that's been um, repeated by everyone so much that it, it feels like a cliche, but it's more a tribute to him. I, I think Jermaine to this show and to Jeff, he also really embraced tennis analytics and data. It, it wasn't how he came to the sport. It wasn't 
uh, sort of what I think came most naturally and, and easily to him, but he was always looking for evidence to back or rebut his thesis, and he worked really hard to get the best information, and sometimes he would collect it himself if he had to. Uh, I know he would go to Jeff sometimes and, and Jeff's site, and um, I, I really admired that because I think some writers who who don't have something as part of their natural language when they start covering a beat have trouble incorporating it later and and Tom never never shied away from new new sources of, of information uh, to to help you know build his case and and inform readers and he also you know in the spirit of this episode covered other sports as well and loved other sports as well and I think uh, you know I'm gonna miss him at lots of times but having a chance to talk to him about the, the, the nature of the sports world we're in now and, and the challenges it, it, it faces uh, w- would have been really special. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so f- for those of you who who knew his work, uh, there's there's lots of tributes out there to read, including a, a, an interesting and thorough one from, from Pete Bodo. At, I think that's at tennis.com. And for those of you who didn't know his work or want to know it better, you know, tons of his articles are, are archived on the Wall Street Journal site. Um, virtually all of them good, worth reading still. And he also wrote many pieces for 538. I'm sure many other sources as well, but those two will at least get you started on, on his work. And he was also a guest on Carl's tennis podcast multiple times. So check out the 30 Love podcast, which you should be doing anyway, but you can, you can listen to Carl and Tom talk tennis at U.S. Open's past. So um, even though, unfortunately, he's no longer with us, um, his work will always be. And uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to know that that it, it's still having a positive effect on all of us. So rest in peace, Tom Parada. Um, thank you, Carl and Josh, for joining me for this week's episode. Thanks for having me. Um, absolutely. An, a, a second and probably not final but final for today plug for for josh's book with with um co-author jonathan clegg about the club how the english premier league became the wildest richest most disruptive force in sports uh even if you're not a soccer fan you should read it anybody interested in in sports business or geopolitics or i guess it's conceivably interested in soccer you should read that book um, you can find past episodes of the podcast at podcast.tennisabstract.com. You can find me at Twitter at Tennis Abstract. You can find Josh on Twitter at Josh Robinson. Is that right, Josh? It's uh, at Josh Robinson 23. Because there's a lot of Josh Robinsons out there. That makes sense. Um, these are the things I should be looking up before the show starts. But at Josh Robinson 23, find him on Twitter. Check out Carl's podcast. Dot, 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 dot. I will stop plugging everything I can think of right now and wrap up this episode. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, this has been episode 90 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. Um, next week will be our first uh, book club episode. So read your Gordon Forbes, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>